This is the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, featuring talks and conversations presented by the Public Programs Department of California Institute of Integral Studies, a nonprofit university in San Francisco. In solidarity with Black Lives Matter and Amplify Melanated Voices, this week we are highlighting four conversations from our archives that feature Black thinkers, activists, and writers. Starting Thursday, June 4th through Sunday, June 7th, we are re-releasing conversations with Ijeoma Oluo, Damon Young, Joy DeGruy, and Angela Davis. We hope that listening to these episodes provides resources and connection in these transformative times. You can find all four episodes and more on the recommended page at ciispod.com or by subscribing to this podcast. Thank you for listening, and we wish you well. Hey. Hello. <laughs> Look Hi. around. I know. Welcome, everyone. Welcome, Ijoma. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you in the Bay Area. Yes. <laughs> and welcome to CIIS. Yes, this is my first time here, so it's very exciting. Excellent. Everyone's been so kind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We've got some great people in the house. Do you have this kind of uh, reception when you talk about race? Usually in the beginning. (laughs) (laughs) Usually when I walk in the room. And then what happens? And then people are like, oh no. Oh, this is this is the type of talk. We're going to actually have a talk about race. That's and, what. And how do you um, respond to that? Do you watch them as they walk out the door? Uh. You know, very few people are brave enough to walk out the door. Um, yeah. Occasionally I'll get an angry email later. Those are fun, um, especially if I feel like responding. But usually what ends up happening is someone waits for question and answer. And then they try it. They have, I have a statement, more of a statement than a question. I like that voice. Yeah. <laughs> do that again. Do that again. This is, this is a podcast, so do yeah. that again. Yeah. I, have, I have, it's more of a statement than a question. <laughs> and then it's usually the statement is, I really don't like the things you said. They made me uncomfortable. Um, so and and then I usually get to address that, which is it, it was fun in the beginning. Now it's kind of boring because it's the same answer every time. And what do you say? Usually it's something along the line to get over yourself. Oh, yeah. Wow. Um, but you know, mm-hmm. I figure you wait in line for that, mm-hmm. and you didn't do your research to figure out what I was going to say. Mm-hmm. That's on you. <laughs> for those of you that do not know of this fabulous author. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself, because I know you're always getting this in your interviews. Tell us about who you are, where you come from. <laughs> How did you get inspired to write? Yeah, so I am Ijemo Luo, and I am the child of a immigrant from Africa and a white lady from Kansas, and I didn't become president. Um, <laughs> My, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, I was I was raised by my mom in Seattle, a predominantly white area. Um, I was fortunate, at least, 
in that I was raised by a mom who was very, very determined that I stay as connected as she could make to Nigerian culture and black culture. Um, she definitely felt the loss of my dad who went back to Nigeria and then passed away very deeply. And so for her, it was really important. Um, but we basically, my brother Aham and I were 18 months apart. We're the only black kids in every room until about seventh grade. And then there was another black kid. And then that got really confusing for everyone. Um, they're like, no, is that your brother? Because I thought that was your brother. Is that a different guy? That, um, so my brother and I grew up kind of as outsiders. So we were always very aware of our race in a really unspoken way that the Pacific Northwest has of like treating you differently but never explaining why. And it made us observers. Uh, in a lot of ways, you know, when you don't quite fit in and there's these big missing pieces of the puzzle that are impacting your life, you spend a lot of time watching to try and figure out what's different, why. Um, I was very fortunate, like I said, in not having a mom who basically said race doesn't matter and we're all the same. Like my mom, you know, when we go to the store and we get followed around, my mom was like, oh, okay, hey, this is the thing that happens because you're black. Um, sorry, this sucks. Like she wasn't trying to be like, just try hard and cops will stop following you, you know. Um, but also it was limited. You know, my mom was still a white woman. <laughs> and so we spent a lot of time being very observant about things. And so for me, growing up, I was someone that was always keenly involved in politics, looking for patterns in society, the way the world worked. Um, but, you know, so of course I got a job in tech because that's what you do in Seattle. And um, had two kids. But I realized as I got older, you know, that that part of my life, like my happiness was never going to really change depending on what sort of financial or career success I had. The world was still going to be the world and I still had things to say about it. And none of my relationships were going to be authentic if I couldn't speak about it. And in my community, if I couldn't be seen as a black woman, I wasn't going to be seen at all. And so I started writing about it. And I started writing about it really just to reach out to my local community and in kind of desperation that the people that I loved might step forward and actually care about these issues, especially living in a really politically active community. Seattle loves, you know, it's very polite protests and loves its angry Facebook posts um, but it does not like talking about race unless it's something happening in Tennessee or Arkansas or Georgia, but nothing happening in Seattle. Um, and so it was really a lot of desperation to to find friends that were really my friends and find communities that cared about these things that were impacting me as much as they cared about things that were impacting other people. So it started there. I started writing like on Facebook. I had a food blog because I like free food. Um, honestly, like you guys, if you like free food, just get a food blog. Um, people will invite you to everything. Nobody even has to read your blog. It just has to exist. I'm just saying, if you like food, I like food. Um, and then I start, stopped writing about food mm -hmm. <laughs> because as much as I like food, I also like needed to survive. So I was writing about issues of race there and then other, it started picking up. People started reading it. Other people locally who were feeling similarly started reaching out. And then nationally, people started reaching out. And then I kind of had this life where half my life, I was talking really openly about these things that I hadn't felt safe talking about before. And then the other half of my life, I was 
working in marketing in an auto industry <laughs> and and they didn't work well together mm-hmm. um and so i had to give up one and surprise i did not decide to keep up auto marketing um and i moved into writing full time and oh. it's been kind of full steam ahead you do the twitter thing too right <laughs> i do why is that so funny i'm i'm old school so no, I mean, Twitter's just successful. It's a horrible thing that I absolutely love and won't give up. Um, I think I was really lucky in the fact that actually I worked in digital marketing. So Twitter actually was my job, you know, but to be like, buy a Chevy, um, not the sexiest tweets. And I actually started using Twitter for my work. I never used it personally. But what would happen was, you know, things would happen. I can swear here, right? Because I swear like a, Go on. a little bit, right? All right, because... I'm not going to stop you. Good, all right. Good. Um, here, we, here it comes. Like, no, I mean, I'm not like... Like, I'm not going to go like ham. It's just I've never not been able to swear. Like, it's really tough. Um, but like, you know, there are things you can't say in the office. I worked in, in a 100% white male environment, except for me. And so Twitter, I couldn't be on Facebook, right? That's like a long status. People see that they walk by, especially when your job's internet. People are like, oh, what are you doing? And so I would pick up my phone and just tweet something. And so that's actually how Twitter started. I never used it before. My brother forced me to get one because he said it's a really cool way to see all the ways that celebrities like fuck things up. And that was the only reason why I signed up for it. And then I found out that like I could, tweet something really quick and go back to work. And and those were actually, that's actually how a lot of it really started was I'd be really angry and heartbroken and frustrated at what was happening in the world. And so I would send tweets on my phone when no one was looking. And then I'd get like CBS evening news being like, we would like to talk to you about these tweets. I'm like, what do you, let me, let me go to my car. And I would go and sit in my car and, and interview with them and then go back to work. And what were you saying? I mean, it was weird because you're trying to say a professional, but mm-hmm. like you've got like cars driving past you and like people yelling about car deals and you're like <laughs> trying to talk about the world as it is. I mean, mostly I was I was stunned. I didn't know what to make all of it. I was just trying to share my opinion and share why. So people were asking me, why are you thinking this? I'm like, well, because I'm a black woman and I'm a mom and I live in this world. And so I'm just trying to talk about what I'm seeing. Um, I still at times am mystified as to why it was something that picked up that resonated. I think because it was purely emotional because I never started out. I really didn't start out saying I'm going to be a writer. I wanted to be a writer when I was a kid. Um, and I probably stopped thinking of that as a career path for me by sixth grade. So I didn't set out saying I'm going to be viral. I'm going to build a, I never asked anyone to follow me on anything. Um, because it was pure emotion, because it was really like, I will die if I can't say these things. I think a lot of people who are feeling like they were dying because they couldn't say these things, it resonated with them. But it was never an intention. It was purely selfish in the beginning of just a need just to get out. that out. Yeah. you know. And mm-hmm. I think that for other people who need to get it out, it resonated as something really authentic with them. Mm-hmm. And so what led to race? What led to you focusing solely on that well i think a lot of it is just the world we live in you know i there are so many other things i would love to look at as well Mm -hmm. but race is in everything and i think it's so interesting when people 
people think that they focus on things that aren't race. And unless you're literally like, I'm a marine biologist and I'm looking at dolphins all day, everything you do touches race. And if you're white and you get to think that you're not working in race, that's a lie. And it's a harmful lie because you still are. And I just happened to be aware that that's what I was working on. Mm -hmm. um, as far as working directly on issues of racial justice, you know, you have a sense of emergency. And as someone who's always been an observer and you're taking in all of this discussion and you see these things that aren't being said or aren't being said loud enough, or there's just not enough voices backing it up, you're like, well, if I don't say it, who's going to say it? And so it's it's it was never something really of joy, like, yeah, I get to say these things. Mm -hmm. You know, it's never fun to talk about these issues as someone who lives them. You know, like black people do not like talking about racial oppression. But you have this sense of like, this is going to pass by and this isn't going to get said. Um, or it's not, or it'll be said by someone and no one else will back it up and no one will believe them. And so then you have to say it. And unfortunately, we live in a world where when it comes to issues of race and issues of anti-blackness, nothing, so much isn't being said. And so every day I think maybe I can write something else unfortunately there's something else I can write about that has to do with race um, it's not it's tough work but the reality is still there if I do it or don't you know what I mean right and so it's like oh I can be like oh I can go back to marketing but I'm still living in the world where that's still the conversation I'm taking in it's still the world I'm living in I don't you know you don't get to turn it off um, so I'm privileged in that I get to write it and I get to be heard when I say it. Did you begin to think about the chapters in your book? How did your book evolve? Because you have 17. I've, I've read <laughs> so the book. Many chapters. <laughs> 17 fabulous, very different chapters on race. Yeah. How many people have read it already? Anybody read it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to ask you what's your favorite chapter soon. <laughs> so how did you start to compile your work you know I actually learned a lot about it myself by the chapters I included at first and the chapters I didn't because when you write a book I don't know if everyone here is familiar with the book process but I didn't know until I got into it but before you write a book you have to write a proposal which is basically a book about your book <laughs> and if you have ADD like I do it's the worst that took me longer than writing the book because that's not fun. Like, oh, I have to write a book. No one's going to read this except for, yeah, anyways. <laughs> but you have to decide what every chapter is going to be. Do a, but then you get accepted, and then you don't have to do anything that was in the proposal. <laughs> it's really weird. Like, hmm. you're like, oh, now do whatever. Hmm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all so, that trauma. <laughs> yeah, it's all that time. <laughs> What was interesting to me, I, I started writing the book. I didn't want to write it at first. And my poor agent, I think every time I mention this, she has so much guilt, but she shouldn't because she really kind of pushed me to consider it. I didn't want to write this book at all. I didn't want to write 70,000 words dedicated to race. It's painful enough as it is when I write it 700 words at a time. And I was like, that's 100 times as many. I don't want to do that. Um, and... She was like, no, you have a niche here. Like, you know, I see people, you know, I've been watching the way people respond to the way you explain these things. It may seem simple to you. It might seem reductive to you at times. But a lot of these basic things aren't being caught. 
And if you could write something that people could reference, that would be great. And I was like, no. <laughs> and <laughs> she was like, please think about it. And so I thought about it for a while. And basically what ended up happening was I realized, A, in the meantime while I was thinking about it, yeah, I was still having to write the same essay over and over and over. And my frustrations were always the same. My frustrations weren't necessarily that I thought that people were coming on down on the wrong side of issues, right? Or that people were mean versus people were nice. It was that people were forging ahead without a basic understanding about a lot of issues. And that people were like too afraid to admit that they didn't get it. And they were letting their fear not even their fear of racial progress. That was the weird part for me. It was just their fear of admitting ignorance turned into hostility. That itself was turning into racial hostility, right? Like try bringing up privilege to someone and watch how angry they get. Mm. And they're not angry because it's a black person. Mm -hmm. They're angry because they don't know what privilege means. Mm -hmm. And they don't want to admit they don't know what privilege means. Mm. Um, and to watch that like add another layer of complexity, mm -hmm. like that was really, you know, I realized, okay, maybe like I'm, I'm not going to be an expert. I'm not going to give people all of the answers. But if I could give something to kind of update this conversation, get past some of those initial hurdles that stop us from even being able to like get two minutes in, maybe it'll be helpful and maybe I'll write less of these essays. And so then I started thinking like, what are the most common questions I have? And then it was not only what are the most common questions I have, but what are the questions I never have? And that frustrates me. Like the questions that people should be asking me. And then it was like, oh, what are the questions, what are the things I totally forgot that I should have that show like my own issues with that, right? Like I got through all the way through my proposal without including um, the model minority myth. And that for me was a learning point, right? To realize I could get all the way through and not only get through writing it all, spend months writing it, but also have it accepted mm -hmm. for publication. Mm -hmm with leaving out this huge vital, not only vital segment of the population, but vital story of how race works in this country. Um, and so that taught me a lot personally. Um, and so, you know, that's when I realized so many of these fundamentals were all part of a white supremacist society that benefits from us not having them. And I want to see a return. I think a lot of times we think that because it's 2017 that we should be past the basics, but we never had the basics. So I really want to see a return to that full scholarship of the absolute basics, not just a niche place, you know, where like people who make that their life's work and want to be race, race theorists and, you know, spend forever debating back and forth. Not that. I want like the basics, like what our kids should have been taught in elementary school, but never were like, it's never too late. And I want this to be a piece of that. And so that's kind of the approach I, I came through in coming into the chapters. Like, well, like what today, when I look around, is stopping people from getting, grasping those very basics of how race impacts people's lives every day. And that racial trauma. Yeah. Mm -hmm, and stress. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I think a lot of people, I think one of the main missing components in discussions of race is you know, we're getting to it now, unfortunately, as we look at, you know, the rising death rate of black women um, as they give birth um, is the cumulative effect of racial trauma, not just generationally, but just everyday life. 
um, and that has been given far less scholarship than it should. And a lot of these basics, those are those were the things I wanted to cover. Was the things that stop you from being able to be your best self at work, <laughs> from being able to get through your day, from being able to have healthy and productive relationships with your community. Um, that's kind of where I wanted to focus because I think that feeds a lot of the bigger stuff as well. Any any chapter you want to talk about and expand upon a little bit for the audience? Which chapter you feel like you really dug deep? I would say the chapter that probably stuck with me the most, there's two chapters. Um, when I was talking about affirmative action, the intro to that, right, the the personal story leading up to that um, is not one I can read publicly, which I didn't realize until I tried to read it publicly. <laughs> and I was like, oh, this isn't going to work. Um, particularly looking at, like, my brother's story in there. Can't do it. I didn't even realize how much unresolved and it's not even my personal trauma, but how much unresolved trauma I had around that for my brother uh, until I tried to read it publicly. And now it's like, it's not even a chapter I can think about. Um, and that shocked me to realize like at 37, you know, I was still carrying around like the pain for like this, you know, 11 year old that my brother could have been, you know what I mean? Um, and he's a wonderful person. It's not like this, the story ends badly. Like my brother's doing great. Um, but he still carries that too, you know? And like, just remembering that, I think, you know, as an older sibling, like looking back and being like, I don't know, the him I didn't get to know then, you know? So that part, I didn't realize like how unresolved, usually as an essayist, I get to pick things to write about when I'm ready to write about them. But you can't cut a whole chapter out of your book because you're not ready to write about it. (laughs) And so that was when I didn't realize like I hadn't made any peace with. Um, And then the school to prison pipeline chapter, that stuck to me because A, I'm a parent, right? And of course, I've always known we had a problem. But the more you dig into the numbers, it gets worse and worse and worse and you leave with just this sense of rage um, and heartbreak at how many different levels are placed in front of our kids. And not only that, but if they make it through, the prize isn't that great. Like, oh, you graduated from the school of white supremacy. Mm success Mm. you know Mm. i mean and that's the best case scenario Mm. right that Mm. they grow up in a space where they've had to internalize so much Mm -hmm. self-hate so much you know oppressive messaging um in order to be called a success and so going through that doing that research was really tough for me and then it was a weird coincidence in the fact that the personal story i include in the half each chapter the first half is Personal anecdote, second half is facts, actions, you know, how to move forward on these issues. So I hadn't written, I had just finished the research. I was actually literally at the end of writing the second half. I had to kind of pick up a chapter based on where I was emotionally, right? So for that one, I still hadn't figured out what I was going to do for the personal chapter. So I was just doing the research and I was angry. And I was angry too because I, 
I couldn't immediately turn and write an essay, which is usually how I get rid of that because I was like, no, this is a chapter in my book. <laughs> I have to hold it. Mm-hmm. I have to hold it inside. And so I just put a lot of fake, angry Facebook posts out for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and while I was doing that, then a black local black mom called me mm-hmm. for help with her son. And that ended up being the story in there. And so it was literally as I was at my computer typing, finishing up the second half of the chapter that a black mom called me with the first half of the chapter um, trying to get my help because, you know, the school had tried to push her kindergartner out and, you know, someone had threatened to press charges against her five-year-old son for pushing a teacher. Um, And so that, I think that was the chapter that for months just had me feeling like, I mean, we talk about the school to prison pipeline, but it had me just feeling this sense of like, why is this not like, I wanted to be at every PTA meeting, you know, I wanted to be at every school board election and being like, do you realize like, not only is this a serious, serious problem, but the levers that control it are so visible and can be so easily moved in another direction. And it's not, you know, getting police officers out of schools is one of the most measurable things you can do, right? Adequately funding special education programs and putting in actual criteria for determining who goes into special education programs Mm -hmm. is one of the most fundamental things that you can do to ensure that children of color aren't pushed into these underfunded programs as behavioral issues with no diagnosis whatsoever of learning disability or special need you know all of these things right that could help but also making sure that you know it's funded enough that if you do have kids with special need especially kids of color with special need that they can actually get the education they deserve right all of these things like that we could be doing especially as a society where we have so much power you know nobody votes for their school board elections and no one goes to pta meetings And these are the spaces where we could show up a couple times and literally just annoy these people into making better choices. Um, And and we're not. And that that was, so that was the chapter that still I think about all the time. And it's still, I can't get past it. I annoy everyone because that's my answer to everything is like, do you know who's on your school board? It's one of the number one things we can do to stop this process in the very beginning, right? When our kids are first funneled into this system in our school systems is by making sure that if you want that job, you got to care about kids of color. Wow. I hear you. I'm a grandmama, so. Yeah. Right. So you're there, right? Right there, (laughs) you know, and um, you, it's, it's, it's very concerning, Mm -hmm. but I like what you said about the basics. I mean, you, you, you write so beautifully that people can read it and get it. And, and read the whole thing and then go back and read it again, you know? I know what my chapter is. Oh, yeah. <laughs> my cha- I mean, I love them all, and it, they're, they're all deep, but why can't you touch my hair? Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Preach, sister. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about how you thought about that chapter. <laughs> Because in the middle of affirmative action and all this other good stuff about model minority myth and talking is great, but what else can we do? 
I get stuck on the hair piece because that's that's personal. Yeah. You know, it was funny because I think when I was younger, I didn't think it was as big of a deal as it was. I mean, I was raised by a woman. I literally grew up with white women in my hair every day. But as I got older and I realized how much of my bodily autonomy was taken away in all these various forms, um, and I saw it the same with my kids and, of course, with other black people, um, I started to realize what it stood for. And I became more and more frustrated when people wouldn't get it. And they'd be like, why are you making such a big deal out of hair? Like, you know, <laughs> why is it such a big deal? And I wanted to kind of get to the core of what it means to feel so entitled to someone that you could go up and touch their person, right? And what it means to not have a problem with the fact that you live in a society where you would know nothing about this person's hair. Black people have existed in this country as long as, you know, as long as this country was overrun and claimed by white settlers, right? Mm -hmm. We have been here. And yet our hair is so mystical and magical but the only way you know anything about it, we've got hundreds of, <laughs> hundreds of magazines out there. I know everything about white people's hair. <laughs> I can, any of you, I can fix your hair. <laughs> Whatever's happening. Sometimes I look and I'm like, I could, I could do something about that. <laughs> but my hair is such a mystery that people like, they're just like, oh my God, if I could just touch it, I would know something. And to know that then your problem wouldn't be, why do I live in a society where I wouldn't know about these people for hundreds of years? Why do I live in a society where in the world of hundred, where there's a shampoo commercial every five seconds and every fashion magazine has how to, to get every type of hairstyle. I know nothing about black hair. Mm. And, and then why is it my response then that, well, maybe I should go grab it. Mm-hmm. and touch it mm-hmm. instead of demanding a system mm-hmm. where I would know and appreciate it for what it is. Mm-hmm. And and to understand that that means more than just hair, right? That that's yes. everything that we are, yes. that it is claimed, that it is only useful when it can be exotified or used, and otherwise it is degraded and it is ugly. And even when you make moves for yourself, you know, part of the reason why I include the story I included in there was, you know, going natural for me it was a personal it wasn't even a political thing it was really more realizing as I hit my 30s that I had no memory of my hair you know my mom had been Mm. relaxing my hair at my insistence actually because my mom my mom used to (laughs) my mom used to keep a black power pick and she would pull it out and be like if only you had an afro you could wear this go to school and my kid all the kids would know how much you love being black and I'd be like I want to look like Wendy Houston leave me alone Um, and I would make my mom go and buy me you know the extra straight relaxer all the time and straighten my hair ever since the age of probably five and even before then I wanted it pressed Um, and so when you hit your 30s and, and it's weird to realize like I didn't even know what texture it would be I knew it wasn't going to be, I knew I wasn't going to come out looking like Chili from TLC, right? I knew that wasn't going to happen. I'm half Nigerian. Um, but I had no idea at all. I had never felt my hair. You know, you get a half inch in your growth and it's embarrassing. 
and then you straighten it out. I didn't know what my curl pattern was. And that's that's such an odd thing. Like I, I don't know if, if you're not black, what that would feel like to know like you have hair on your head your whole life. Mm-hmm. And you hit 30 mm-hmm. and you don't know what texture it is. You don't even know what color it is because I had relaxed the red by then. You don't know if it's curly. You don't know if it's kinky. You don't know if it's soft. Nothing whatsoever. I mean, that that was weird. <laughs> you know? That's a whole book right yeah. there. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, I, I cut it off and grew it out. And I... Every, you know, people had something to say because I used to, you know, like always dress up for stuff and people always had comments about it. I weathered all of that to make my hair mine and get used to fighting the patriarchal norms too, right? Of needing longer hair, right? And suddenly I had hair this this short, an inch short, you know. I, I battled all of that, get to where I love my hair and then I show up for my first day of my promotion. My boss is using my hair to degrade women who straighten their hair and telling me how much better my hair is because I don't do this to mm. me. You know, and, and to realize even then when you take that step away, mm-hmm. you do this whole thing for yourself and white supremacy still feels like they can claim it. And they're like, yeah, no, you don't get to touch it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you don't get to touch anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> you, you don't stay away. And, um, you know, and of course it wasn't the first time my hair had been commented on or touched or anything like that. But I think like that's when it, you know, really drove home when I was suddenly trying to be used as a weapon against other black women that I realized there's no winning. And it and it, it lives in that sense of ownership, you know, that sense that everything that we do um, is viewed through the lens of is it useful to white supremacy or is it not? And... Um, so I figured it needed a chapter because I needed people to get to the core of it, which is it's not just hair. Right. It's not. And it's not going to just be hair. Right. It's going to be the skin tones we fetishize. Right. It's going to be the body types we fetishize. It's going to be all of these sorts of things that we do to black people to say that your only use is, you know, what we define and, and never beyond that. Do a part two to that one. Okay. <laughs> what chapter you think you left out? <sighs> you know, I we were talking a little bit on the phone before, and you were talking a bit about like research into healing, um, research into like different methods of working with populations of color and black populations. What I would love to see that I couldn't include so much of this work ends up being navigating white spaces and white people. And there's so little time for the self and for black people and other people of color to sit in their own identities and in their own communities and heal and work and study like I think the scholarship of that part, I spent I spent a lot of time studying white supremacy, mm-hmm. studying the system of white supremacy, and it's kind of sad function of society that I hardly got to spend any time studying black culture, black history, black healing, you know, Asian American culture, Asian American history, Asian American healing. We don't get to do that work for ourselves. And 
that's I think forever frustrating for me and I think especially to have my first major book right be still dedicated to that like and taking on additional trauma to write it I'm going to talk to you about that you know (laughs) Um, and realizing that once again I'm asking people even in reading it I hope that people of color who read it because I write fundamentally for people of color even in a book where I hope uh, I hope a lot of white people read this because mm-hmm. I think they need to. Mm-hmm. But I still write thinking that the opinion I'm looking for, the people I'm looking to help are people of color and first and foremost, black women. Um, to know still that my contribution still can't be at this point. Um, healing in the black community and scholarship in the black community. Um, it still has to be just getting white supremacy to understand it even exists. Um, that that that's the part that I would love to be able to dedicate some time to, you know. And and because there's a flip side to every one of these chapters, right? There's a flip side to every one of these chapters about our culture and what we're doing, and not just the trauma and not just the pain, right? That's right. Um, and the methods that we're taking on that that are working and some that aren't like all of that scholarship is missing and you know i would love to be be able to put forth and say these are what studies say are the best methods for handling this but we don't have it you know we have some people out there doing the work oh yeah but we don't have enough not a yeah not Not nearly enough enough. it's not treated right but there's resilience yeah there is but i you know i'm 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 so at this point I am anti-resilience. <laughs> I really am. Um, resilience is a necessity, and it has become an obligation, and that's not okay. Uh, I I I want black people. I want people of mm-hmm. color, mm-hmm. and I want black women, particularly, to be able to fall apart. Mm-hmm. You know. Yes. And to be picked up and held, and nurtured. Um, and our work that never seems to be the aim of this work, right? The aim is to celebrate those who rise above, mm-hmm. um, to laud our exceptionals, but never to give space for us to actually feel what happens, to fall apart, to fail. Mm-hmm. Come to, to see IIS, no. you know, <laughs> <laughs> because that's what we're looking at that. You know, what does it mean to be just real, yeah. right? And how do you rise above all that other stuff? What is it? And that was my question to you. You're dealing with a topic that can be uh, stressful. Yes. <laughs> but you look good. Thank you. I can say, I, I like to tell people I age on the inside. Everything inside, worms and, um, you know. What, what, what would you say to your 80-year-old self? So I know this will sound weird. Um, well, no, it won't sound weird, but it's probably something a lot of people maybe don't know if they don't, because most people who follow me follow my social justice work. So I was battling fairly deadly chronic disease most of my life. 80 was not something I ever could even imagine. Yeah. 
so I don't work like someone who ever expected 80. And I don't know if I ever can now, you know? I'm used to thinking I probably had a limited timeline. And I don't now, unless I get hit by a bus. And who knows, you know? <laughs> I'm clumsy. So... <laughs> um, and you're funny, too. <laughs> but, you know, for me, um, I never lived with that expectation. And so 80-year-old me, I have no idea. Um, 80 will be a success no matter what. Mm-hmm. Um uh, I kind of have that weird elation of knowing like that maybe that's a chance and that's a thing. So I don't know. I've always worked. I gave up on the thought of work-life balance a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> I, I have my things that I don't cut and I am proud of. I I am glad knowing that by the time I hit, thank you, you're so kind. And I'm glad knowing that um, you guys, I love y'all so much. This is the sweetest thing ever. Um, I, I think I know, I'm confident I know that I know that my kids were never sacrificed in this. Mm-hmm. Um, there are times they don't see me a lot, but no, no, I'm a writer. I mean, and I do get to work from home and I'm busy and I'm distracted. They see me, even now I'm doing a book tour and I put all my kids stuff in the calendar so my publicist knows that she's booking around that. Um, I've been a single mom since I was 20 years old. So that's that's my life. I wouldn't have this work without them. They're why I do what I do. Everything else, I will probably work myself to the bone forever. Um, so long as I know as I, I kept that as a priority, it's going to be okay. Um, I, I've, I'm not... I think because I always kind of had this frantic thought of time, I had to give up. And I've realized in these last couple of years with work, because everyone tries to tell you about work-life balance, right? Mm-hmm. It's like self-care, mm-hmm. self-care. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what self-care looks like when mm-hmm. you grew up dirt poor and mm-hmm. sometimes you know with no electricity and mm-hmm. sometimes homeless or housing insecure. And then you're a single mom. And what is self-care at that point? <laughs> like I pay my mortgage. I have a mortgage what um and i was actually talking about that in my book opening like you know what that's one of the things i've had to realize give up on is it's not a thing for me and and the stress i have trying to come up with it and then melissa harris perry was actually there mm-hmm. <laughs> and she cracks me up this woman mm-hmm. um she came backstage to say hi just to tell me that it's actually worse than i was talking about she was mm-hmm. like girl you're saying you're just now thinking there's no self-care like whatever you think you have right now, it gets worse, but it's okay. It never goes away. That just becomes your life. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so there's that. <laughs> yeah, it is a Hallmark card. Right. <laughs> Where's your community? Where do you where do you what do you consider community community? Um, I'm very fortunate in having close family. Uh so my brother Aham and I, you know, we're 18 months apart. And I think being only two black kids everywhere, like we were the we were each other's only friends for a very long time. 
um, and he lives locally. So, you know, we still talk a couple times a week. Um, anything major, we reach out to each other all the time. And he's married to a lovely woman, Lindy West, um, who um, I also adore. And my little sister, Jackie, she's 13 years younger than me. So she's <laughs> just now hitting an interesting age in life, you know? <laughs> like, I like to say she's still at that age where, like, if I say, oh, Jackie, do you want a glass of wine? she will literally answer, I don't like wine yet. <laughs> <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just cracking me up I'm like okay mm-hmm. um and so we're really close mm-hmm. um the more work i do like this the more kind of homebound i get and my kids yes like my kids are amazing amazing human beings who don't care what i've got going they've still got their things you know i'll be like oh my god even my book opening my son was like oh but mom i have a thing and i'm like look i got a thing <laughs> yeah. i have a thing yeah you know, um, and I, I love them to death for it because, you know, they keep you grounded. Um, Seattle does have a black community that is unfortunately being rapidly displaced, which I'm sure many people in the Bay Area recognize mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. And I know this because we lost about 20 percent of our black community to Oakland five years ago. And then Oakland became too expensive. Mm-hmm. And now I don't know where anyone's moving. Yeah. Um, I don't know where Oakland's moving. Antioch. Antioch. Mm-hmm. OK, so. Nobody tells Seattle about Antioch because I'm tired of losing black people. Um, but we do have, we try to, we try our best to stay connected. You know, we, we are creative people. And so we try to find other ways as we're pushed further and further out of the city limits mm-hmm. to stay tight. And there's a group of women of color who are heavily involved in different areas of justice and arts in the city. We get together about once a quarter just to like, rejuvenate have some wine cook for each other like um and that means the world to me before i had that it was tough (laughs) it was really tough what kind of drawback have you been getting about talking so (laughs) explicitly and um unapologetically about race you know it's rarely anything i feel i think you know when you live in a world where that's gaslighting you all the time and never wants to talk about it, right? That's a worse punishment than anything. Anyone can really level at you. You know what I mean? For speaking out. Like, it's far worse to, like, have everyone pretend everything's fine around you than to have people mad that you're talking about how things are messed up. Um, and I lived with that for so long that I'm kind of lucky. Like, people kind of get mystified because most of it doesn't hit me. I would say I went through that weird thing with Cracker Barrel which still I don't understand. I still get tweets about from... What happened? So, <laughs> this is so bonkers. It's not even gonna, like, you're gonna, like, be shaking your head, be like, what is wrong what? with people these days? Mm-hmm. All right. I took my kids on a road trip, right? I, I, I love road trips with my kids. Um, I wanted this to be time where I wasn't plugged in, you know, a couple weeks, taking my kids across the country. Just the three of us. We drive through Montana. My kids are hungry. The only place that's open is a Cracker Barrel. I've never been in a Cracker Barrel, right? I've lived in Seattle my whole life. So I'm not only in a Cracker Barrel, but I'm in a Montana Cracker Barrel. So I walk in, and it's like suddenly I'm in the antebellum self's garage sale 
and it's everywhere. And I'm like, whoa, this is a lot for this Seattle girl, right? Like, this is a lot. And I'm like, oh, no. People are nice. People are fine. Whatever. It's terrifying. Okay? Like, every, like, ornament's made out of cotton, like, like cotton buds. And, like, it's just terrifying, right? Like, you know, like, if the KKK's grandma, if you cleaned out her attic after she died. <laughs> um... Like, I don't care. Everyone who could tweet me about this already has, so I don't care anymore. Um, so I'm sitting there eating. We sit down to eat. We're the only black people around, right? And we're getting these watery-ass grits. And I'm looking at a sea of cowboy hats. And we're obviously standing out. People are being fine. But I'm uncomfortable as fuck. So I tweet out, like, <laughs> are they going to let my black ass walk out of here? That's it. Now, I don't know if y'all are familiar with my work. That is the least inflammatory thing I think I've ever said in my life. <laughs> I literally like wrote a whole essay called White People Will Let You Down. No one cared. <laughs> but this, oh my God, one tweet about Cracker Barrel. So it got, it got picked up by this like, I don't know, these weird shit posters on Twitter whose job is just to make people of color and trans people and people on the left miserable and was like, this is the most racist thing ever. And next thing you know, it was on every conservative blog, Facebook page, and I'm on vacation. Mm. So I don't know what's happening because I'm not plugged in. All I know is all of a sudden my phone is blowing up with like threats, um, constant. And like, and because I'm on vacation putting pictures, people are like, I hope someone pushes your kids off the Grand Canyon mm. and like, like all this left and right. And not like a mild ones. I usually get threats, right? Like everything. But this was literally to the point where my f systems were crashing because they were coming in so fast. So I couldn't even update it fast enough. I was getting hundreds an hour. And uh, so I'm trying to, be safe <laughs> you know and i'm on vacation and i got my mom calling me worried that like someone's i'm actually glad kind of glad i was on vacation because i wasn't at home mm -hmm. right no one there wasn't an address people could post mm. but my mom was like oh my god you know blah 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 um and then i'm trying to deal with this influx that's happening i'm trying to report things online and the reason why it was important for me to report things was not necessarily because it bothers me so much, but because I'm, I, I have a large following on social media, and it's a place where a lot of people from marginalized communities like to come to talk. And then suddenly that space is covered with posts of like lynched black bodies and things like that. People were putting pictures of this stuff like up all over my page. It's not, it becomes a damaging space, right? So for me, the ability to keep that space clean, especially because I wasn't that, at home to like monitor it and twitter was actually pretty cool about it twitter was like anything i reported almost everything i reported they like suspended someone or deleted it and and they also have quality filters you can turn on and half of it goes away facebook on the other hand every time i would report something like people were photoshopping like my head onto bodies of gorillas and like i report it and they'd say oh this doesn't violate our rules you know all over and over again <laughs> and so I started putting up screenshots, saying this is what I'm seeing that Facebook doesn't. And so then Facebook suspended me. And mm. so I was like at Disneyland with my kids. <laughs> and I like, that's when I started crying. Like it was like mm -hmm. days of like trying to deal with this. And I was like, I can't even get this system to like 
yeah. So anyway, so that ended up being a huge fiasco, right? So then I wrote a post on Facebook. was like, oh my God, we're so sorry. Would you like a free tour of Facebook? And I'm like, no. <laughs> wow. Um, wow. Yeah. And I had these phone calls with like the one black dude that works there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> And he was like, and as an African, I'm like, you don't even have to say you're an African-American man. I know who you are. <laughs> yeah, right? We have this conversation about how things are going to change. Mm. And then within the next month, I think like five other black activists I know were suspended for also talking about white supremacy they were facing, right? Mm-hmm. This is after this whole thing that embarrassed them. Over a million views to my post talking about what happened. Um, and I still, to this day, it's been about, what, eight months now? still some random ass lady who has like no idea of time or space <laughs> will find this tweet and be like, you're the real racist. And I'm like, wait, what are you even talking? Oh, oh. Um, <laughs> funny side note too. Facebook actually last week sent my publicist a message asking if I would like to participate in their black history month book reading. And oh boy. yeah, I told him to kiss. It's getting black worse. Ass. I was like, yeah, no, not happening um that was the only time i think where it really got to me because i was trying specifically to take a break from it Mm -hmm. and i was trying to take take time with my kids yes um and i i also had a time schedule (laughs) like i had a time schedule on this road trip because i was ending at my friend Lindsay's wedding who's here Mm -hmm. um and i had missed her dearly hadn't seen her in years it was really important for me to make it and with all these stops of trying to deal with all this i was running late and it was my last day and i realized i wasn't gonna make it to the wedding and i like lost it <laughs> like my poor kid my teenager was like mm. oh god <laughs> we're in a car with mom <laughs> <She's crying. laughs> um i did end up making it luckily mm. i ended up taking a chartering a plane <laughs> mm. Like my community was like, no, we're gonna get you there. We've been watching you. <laughs> so like, got a yeah. charter plane to get there. Um, right. But yeah, that was the only time where it was like, oh, this is too much. Yes, because <laughs> I, I, I know you were yeah. hit. You're been hit. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, because this stuff is, you know, intense. It is, and I mean, there are days, you know, where you're like, yes, I'm tired. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the most part. I'm always aware that I'm super lucky and that I get to say things and be heard. There are so many people out there who are living this every day and are never heard. You know, at least I'm heard. Right? I love and appreciate you. And And your humor is just so beautiful. (laughs) You got to laugh sometimes, right? You know, people say I'm funny. It cracks me up because I'm not. Like, but my, you are. So my brother's funny. I, I grew up like my brother actually writes as a comedian, and like I don't know if y'all know Harry Kondabolu, but Harry and my brother are writing partners, so they've been writing together for years. And so like every time someone's like, "Oh, you're funny," I, like, I no. imagine my brother being like, "She's okay." <laughs> um, but you know we've used humor in our life. You know you have to. You have to. You have to. That's all you got. You. I love you. Okay, let's give her a hand, please. Thank you for listening to the CIIS Public Programs Podcast. Our talks and conversations are presented live in San Francisco, California. Podcast production is supervised by Kirsten Van Cleef at CIIS Public Programs. Audio production is supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. The CIIS Public Programs team includes Kyle DiMedio, 
Alex Elliott, Emlyn Guinea, Jason MacArthur, and Patty Fort. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe wherever you find podcasts. Visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs.